Walter Hang from Toxics Targeting has led unprecedented victories against oil and gas projects in upstate New York. And in this interview, he explains his strategy of balancing the message with an incredibly focused demand. This is Halt the Harm podcast, and I'm your host, Ryan Clover. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, Walter, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks for inviting me. Part of what we're doing with this podcast is we're showing some of the stories and the reasons why people got involved and started taking action, what sustains them and keeps them engaged. But before we go into into your story, can you just introduce yourself to everyone and tell us a bit about Toxics Targeting? Sure. So um, Toxics Targeting is a venture capital firm that I founded um, 28 years ago. Uh, with funding from one of the uh, wealthiest families in American history. And when I was a public interest advocate, I would be on 60 Minutes or I'd be on national news or local news. Then people would call me up and they'd say, hey, you know, I saw you near that Hooker Chemical site and I'm worried about drinking water. By the way, I'm closing on a new house on Tuesday. They would always be closing on Tuesday. And so I'd look at the maps and I'd look at the data and I'd try to figure out, was there water threatened or already polluted? And, and then uh, I was about to get married and I realized I probably needed a, a job, a real job. And so I got $540,000 in venture capital and I started toxics targeting. And all we do is we get the government's data on toxic dumps, abandoned landfills, leaking tanks, and we essentially then integrate all that information together into a giant database, and then we map the sites. And so when someone is buying a home or someone's going to build a highway or do a waterfront development, we provide the data resources that they need to know. Is this site contaminated? Is it going to be worth a lot less than maybe what they thought? And, and so we help engineers and consultants, we help attorneys, we help government agencies, and our big issue is drinking water. We help the biggest drinking water purveyors in the state of New York. And so anyone can go to ToxicsTargeting.com, they can click the Home Buyer Beware um, map, and they can just type in their address, and they can see what's on the property, heaven forbid, or around it. And then because we're former public interest advocates, we do a lot of public policy work uh, to safeguard our home of Ithaca, New York, where we've driven about $70 million worth of cleanup effort. And then we've worked very, very hard for eight years to safeguard New York State as a whole from shale fracking and fossil fuel infrastructure hazards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what strikes me about this is that it's a different approach than some of the standard environmentalist approaches. Can you talk to that a little bit? Like, why did you choose or why is, uh, how is it different? Like running a, running a business as opposed to a nonprofit? Well, I worked for a nonprofit, uh, New York public interest research group for 12 years and I ran their toxics project and we were a joint effort with environmental defense fund. So this is in 1976, (laughs) way back when EDF was like communist. They were radical. They're one of the biggest, you know, environmental, scientific, legal litigation entities in the country. Uh, But they were just suing the hell out of everyone. 
They had great scientists, Joe Hyland and Bob Harris. Uh, and, and so the idea was work with a big, technically sophisticated operation like EDF, and then work with NYPIRG, which was a grassroots student organization in a state. Uh, and so it worked beautifully. You know, but what I learned over the 12 years that I was there uh, was that it's very, very hard to effect political change. It's almost impossible to pass bills. It's, it's very, very hard to make sure the agencies are enforcing the law. And so what happened over time is that those big environmental groups stopped wanting to get into fights. And then, in effect, they became like huge propaganda operations. You know, we're the planet's best defense. And then you say, well, when was the last time you passed a law? When was the last time you cleaned up a toxic site? So all they basically do is claim credit for every good thing that happens and send out fundraising uh, pleas. Toxics targeting is really different. We have to live, you know, basically by what we do through hard work. So when you work for the biggest engineering and environmental consulting firms in the country, they are very exacting. They don't accept lame excuses, and we work very hard to make sure we never have to offer lame excuses. And so we know a lot about the data. And then when we talk to people who really want to protect our environment, they can tell that we have a technical understanding of the legal and the regulatory requirements. And then the key thing is we have the state-of-the-art geographic information system. So we can analyze the 850,000 known and potential toxic sites uh, that we track in New York State. We can find production wells that had fires, explosions, and polluted local water supply wells. We can find massive wastewater discharges that were never cleaned up to the applicable standards. And so we're, we're free as long as we can get support to take action as we see fit. And we work like dogs. We work 24-7. I send out alerts in the middle of the night, and we do all the work ourselves in-house. We don't have consultants. We don't have fundraising staff. We're basically very, very dedicated, technical and public policy people with decades of experience. That's why we're really effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just looking at the website, too, and the people that you work with and clients – it's government agencies, it's real estate, it's financers. And that also just strikes me as, you know, framing the issue in, in economic terms that people can really understand as well. Well, I had this amazing revelation literally, you know, decades and decades ago. So we were little forlorn public interest lobbyists. And this is before I figured out how to get bills actually enacted into law. We were hanging out in the back of the state senate uh, uh, chamber where the phrase lobbying uh, came from, and all our bills were dead. It was practically the end of session. We were doomed. And then this guy, Lester Schulkapper, uh, came through glaring at us. And we were like, how come Lester gets all his deals done and we don't? And I had a revelation. Lester is the banking lobbyist. Of course he gets all his deals done. And then I had a little revelation. I, I thought to myself, you know, we need the banks to protect the environment. And that's when I realized that mortgage loans are secured by property. So banks won't make loans if the property is polluted and they could be liable for cleanup or 
they think that the value of the property is, let's say, $500,000, and they find out it's negative 250000 because there's a leaking tank. And so that little revelation really mm. got me going. And so, you know, we love to offer hope to people, but what we really want them to know is that this is all in your best interest. You know, you can hunt or gather or you can work and save money and buy a home, raise a family and so forth and so on. But if you find out your home is polluted or if you find out, as someone told me yesterday, that their property borders a huge gas storage facility, then, you know, they suddenly their lives have changed. And so that's how come we're very, very reality based. You have a problem. You want a solution. You don't want promises. And that's how come we have a lot of practical experience about identifying problems, solving problems, and making sure that these, you know, favorable outcomes can be replicated. Mm -hmm. So you've seen a number of victories in the last few years. Can you tell us a story about something that stands out that you were involved in fighting that you were able to actually win? Well, the most important thing that we've done uh, in recent years is that we played a key role in stopping shale fracking in New York. And so everyone thought that shale fracking was a done deal circa the autumn of 2009. So the state had said, we're going to adopt a moratorium uh, until we uh, you know, essentially put in place better safeguards. The safeguards that they were thinking about were very, very limited. You know, the extended period of time at a well pad, uh, what about uh, all the water that's being used? Very, very modest concerns, right? And, and would there be, you know, problems with the drawdown of using so much water uh, to frack the shale? Because they pump the water in enormous volumes into the shale, cracks it, that releases the gas. And so with six weeks to go, we uh, documented enormous production well, fires, explosions, wastewater releases, people had to run for their lives. And this destroyed the myth that the state had uh, perpetuated that we've, we've done a lot of oil and gas production, it's safe, our regulations are fine, we just need to tweak them a little bit. Mm-hmm. But then the most important thing is we organized support for withdrawing this draft supplemental generic environmental impact statement which was on the verge of being adopted. And then we held it off for six years. And so ultimately, that proceeding ended with no action. And that's how come not one shale gas production well has ever been fracked in New York. In contrast, in Pennsylvania, they didn't hold up. And now there are thousands and thousands just across the border. So then once we had organized all of those uh, anti-frackers, who we call fractivists, uh, then we used that same research, policy advocacy, organizing, and media outreach um, model. We've now killed nearly $5 billion in fossil fuel infrastructure projects. So we killed the Constitution Interstate uh, Transmission Pipeline Northeast Energy Direct, uh, we killed the Northern Access, and then we also killed the expanded Arlington Gas Storage Facility uh, in Reading, New York. And just last week, 
we killed the the Finger Lakes Crestwood liquefied petroleum gas uh, storage facility. These two gas storage operations would have been built in these huge abandoned salt mines. And so what this would have allowed uh, the industry to do is to transport frack gas out of Pennsylvania, and then they would have stored these fossil fuels in these huge abandoned salt caverns where, when demand is high, they just pump these fossil fuels into the Dominion and Millennium uh, gas pipelines, and they would have conveyed this frack gas down to New York City and to New England, to Canada, and potentially overseas. So New York is now the only state where we've stopped shale fracking, where there's shale to frack, and we've now really, really erected a very strong barrier in upstate New York against these fossil fuel infrastructure projects that once they're built, they're going to operate for 50 years because that's how long it takes to amortize the debt. And so we've really held it off. There are two problems, however. Number one, in downstate New York, they failed to stop the Spectra pipeline to the west side of Manhattan, the first new pipeline in like 50 years uh, to Manhattan. They failed to stop the Algonquin Incremental Markets uh, pipeline through Westchester, Atlantic Bridge, Valley Lateral, and then two giant frack gas power plants are being built, Competitive Power Ventures and Cricket Valley. So the problem is that gas out in Pennsylvania is now going to the New York metropolitan area and then also into New England. In upstate, we've only had one brutal failure, and that was the Dominion New Market Pipeline. So people came to Ithaca, where the main fight was, from out of town, and then they asked for ridiculous things that they were never going to get, improved compressor technology, before and after air quality testing, and then they went after these air permits for the compressors that are called pro forma. That means you apply, you're going to get it. Our strategy is to make sure that the governor can't issue these critical water quality certifications and other wetland uh, certifications that are absolutely within the purview of the state. Uh, So then the local authorities in Dryden basically told local advocates, if you want solar, don't put the pressure on us. And then people literally told me, you have to pick your battles. And they were more oriented towards sustainable energy than blocking this giant pipeline expansion uh, involving the Borger compressor station. And so we failed to stop that project. Other than that, we're batting a 1,000 in upstate New York, but downstate is a real problem. And that's how come we're going to continue to pressure the governor to adopt a moratorium on all fossil fuel infrastructure approvals. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then on top of that, we have to do something very different, I believe. So activists have been promised for decades, we're going to have a wind and solar sustainable energy nirvana. The, The problem is that wind and solar are minuscule. It's less than 4% of our state's energy. So I wish all those sustainable energy activists well. Go hog wild. Get all the wind and solar you can. 
The bottom line is almost all the sustainable energy in New York is hydro. And those facilities are half a century old. They're incredibly expensive to maintain. So the reality is, I believe, we're already addicted to fossil fuels. We're going we're gonna to face more and more pressure uh, for these conversions from coal uh, to basically frack gas. That's now been proposed right here uh, in Lansing at the, at the Millican power station, I understand. Uh, and so there's only one way out. And that is we have to cut energy demand. This is completely consistent with all the other efforts that are being made. People want solar? Great. Go get it. People want wind? Go hog wild. The problem is just not happening. It's too expensive. There are all kinds of grid problems. It's just facing a lot of hurdles. That's how come we're 30 years into this process. There's very little energy production from wind and solar. So the way around this is we have to insulate every home. Every building, every school, every institution, we have to weatherize, we have to have energy efficiency, and believe it or not, that can cut energy demand by a third. Mm -hmm. And if we cut energy demand by a third, those frack gas infrastructure projects are not going to be economically sustainable. I want to talk about that, about like how how can we do that? Because if it's just a matter of choice, industries that might be just producing tons of, of you know plastic bags, for example, or tons of inefficient light bulbs, the fact that those choices are still out there um, and that they're cheaper means that people are going to use them. So what would be the, the solution in terms of incentivizing that energy reduction? So the first thing is that there really hasn't been strong advocacy for energy reduction. When the energy crisis happened in the 70s, that was the first thing that people wanted, you know, energy you conservation, yeah. right? But that wasn't sexy enough. And so then it was going to be, you know, wind and solar nirvana. That's all great, but it just hasn't happened. And that's because the advocates can promise a 100% sustainable energy future endlessly, and then they never have to actually achieve it. For example, solar is only 15% efficient. Imagine owning a car that didn't work 85% of the time. You'd say, that's not a good car. Wind is maybe 25% efficient, right? So again, good Lord willing, go get it, right? It's just really, really hard. So I really think we need a new sustainable energy campaign that says wind and solar is great. The more, the better. But you're exactly right. We have to incentivize society to cut energy demand, which is almost all fossil fuel and in New York State, uh, nuclear. It's roughly a third nuclear, about 40% fossil fuel. Then it's like burning garbage, burning landfill gas, uh, and, and hydro. And when you add that all up, you, you only got about, again, 5% for, for wind uh, and solar. So there's very little hope that that's going to expand significantly. So the solution is, I believe, Governor Cuomo, as he's running for election, we want him, instead of pumping seven-plus billion into subsidizing nuclear that can't compete, right, it's just too expensive— in order to save 600 jobs, 
$7 billion that all New Yorkers who pay utility bills are kicking in. That's ridiculous. If we took that money and we put it into an unbelievably rigorous home insulation, weatherization, energy efficiency program, I believe we could cut the cost of retrofitting a single-family average home from about $10,000 to maybe $5,000 through economies of scale. And then you say to the homeowner, you pay half, state of New York pays half. So if a homeowner... That's incentive. Yeah, that's incentive because... With long-term benefits, too. Right, because you can save $800, an average utility bill per year is 2400 bucks. Yeah. If you save a third, that's $800 in your pocket. Mm-hmm. So when I looked at solar from my little, you know, arts and crafts bungalow, the payback period was 25 years. And so by the time you pay the sucker off, you need a new system, right? But if you insulate your home, which I did for 200 bucks with blown cellulose and weather stripping and a programmable thermostat, I made that back in one winter. So in three years, you can pay off your debt. The beauty is the state, by paying half, could ultimately employ hundreds of thousands of people who just go out and weatherize, retrofit, insulate these homes. That's a whole couple of generations of people who could make New York actually as energy efficient as it could be. This is so completely different from the concept that we're just going to use more and more and more energy in the years more, to come. Yeah. We're going to add more things to the grid. Yeah, and then yeah. we're going to replace fossil fuel nuclear mm-hmm. with wind and solar that's sustainable. That's mm-hmm. just not happening. And that's how come I believe this idea of minimizing energy demand. That's going to strangle the fossil fuel industry. Right. And, and and so I think that's what we want. If fossil fuels are so bad, then we have to stop using them. And the way to stop using them is to stop burning them in our homes and stop burning them in the cars. The problem with electric cars is electricity is almost all made from fossil fuel and from nuclear. So that's really not any better. And that's why we need to make our society as energy efficient as it can be. And, and Governor Cuomo could do that because for not very many billion, you could retrofit the whole state in the next 30 years. Mm-hmm. This is a practical, very, very sensible solution that no one has ever talked about in New York, as near as I can tell. So what about people who live in, in other states outside of New York and have been really just subjected to this massive expansion of fracking and shale gas? Extraction infrastructure projects, coal power plants, or new facilities around plastics, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, what would from you know, with your experience in battling these types of things, you know, where would be a good place for somebody to start in terms of thinking about strategy and how they might start to use some of the strategies that you've used? So, number one, they can go to toxicstargeting.com. And in the lower right-hand corner, there are two red buttons. So the lower button is our current work. And the second button above that is basically summaries of all of our toxic legacy site campaigns, 
our harmful algal bloom campaigns, our you know campaigns that we've been running on infrastructure and fracking. And they can literally just click on whatever issue they're concerned about. So as I'm sure you know, almost all of the activism, whether it be fossil fuel, whether it be infrastructure, whether it be fracking, whether it be toxic pollution, it's all just say no. This reminds me of Nancy Reagan, right? And so people are like, say no to blah, blah, blah. And that just doesn't really work. If you have hundreds of thousands of people in a state, let's say like Pennsylvania and Ohio, and they all say no to fracking, you're going to win. But if you have hundreds of people or maybe a couple of thousand in a huge state, just saying no is probably not fruitful. That's why fracking, as you know, has spread from coast to coast. America is the biggest oil and gas producer now on the planet thanks to shale fracking. Right, So these are very, very tough issues. So saying no just doesn't work. Number two, blogging. That doesn't work. You have to find the people who have a stake in the matter. You have to document the problem. Like if you don't want fracking in Ohio or Pennsylvania, you have to document the government can't safeguard the public health and environment from extraction mining. That's exactly what we did in New York. Government says they can do it safely. We say with all due respect, you haven't done it safely. And it's irresponsible to allow this massive industrial activity given your deplorable record of failure to enforce the law. Once you establish that beachhead by getting press coverage for this primary concern, then you have to start building your coalition. Mm -hmm. And if you have 10 groups who are all just saying, no, you're going to get crushed. Get a thousand groups in a state like Pennsylvania, and you start hammering away on the elected officials, right? You say, who's the key decision maker? Typically, that's the governor. So if you have an electoral campaign underway and they're desperate for votes, you got to go and make them earn your votes. So progressives typically are like debating how many progressive sustainable energy angels are fitting on the head of a pin right you know and they say this candidate said this well i i think you know he earlier said that it's just like this just drives me nuts you just say listen you want my vote this is what i require sign this coalition letter that says we have to adopt a moratorium on all fossil fuel infrastructure project approvals sign this coalition letter which says we have to clean up all legacy toxic sites within five years so you ha- the, the activists have to know what they're talking about, and then they have to be able to execute a concise plan that yeah. brings political pressure to bear, and they have to know what they want. And the only way to do this is you have to start, and then you get crushed. You get your butt kicked over and over again, and then you learn. I mean I lobbied for 12 years in Albany and Washington. I really didn't figure out the secret handshake until maybe a, a decade in. And then for two years, I was like a house on fire. And so when you look at the campaigns that Toxics Targeting has been running in New York, they're the exact opposite of what you normally see from big green groups. If they send out an alert every six months, they think that they're like, you know, slaying Goliath. We're fighting tooth and nail. It's like a, a day, an hour is an eternity in politics. And that's how come, for example, with Crestwood, the reason that this got killed is – 
a letter popped out from the attorneys for the permit applicants. So they couldn't go forward, even though Arlington had Federal Energy Regulatory Commission approval. They needed a state permit, which we were holding up. We were beating the governor very respectfully like a gong to make sure he didn't issue this gas uh, storage permit. All the big enviros were getting crushed in the regulatory and legal proceedings. That's a fact. They just weren't prevailing. And then this letter came out, and it said that there had been salt cavern leakage concerns. I was like, whoa, that's mind-blowing. You can't pump huge quantities of liquefied petroleum gas into a cavern that leaks. I then went through probably 5,000 pages of documents in one day. And in, I think, the 26th document, I found out that the state of New York knew in 2011 about the salt cavern leakage concerns that had been technically documented. And the state said to the applicant, you can do a comprehensive study after you get the permit. I was like, that's deranged. And it shows how industry just applies for these permits and they get the permits. That's why they're called pro forma. So all the toxics targeting does, we get the data, we generate press, we tell activists what to do. Activists on their own will almost never know what the ask is, what the rationale is. They have to learn how to do that. It's not that hard. And if they learn it, they are just like a battering ram. And that's how come our efforts in New York are unprecedented. Like Dakota Access, you know, giant pipeline, thousands of people you know, at the site, unbelievable cold in the northern plains, hundreds of people arrested, huge national press, massive litigation, all for naught. You get totally crushed. So if you don't know what you're doing and you pick the wrong strategy, like saying we should oppose the Spectra pipeline because the gas has a lot of radon, or that Algonquin incremental market passes very close to Indian Point, or competitive power ventures has corruption. Those sound good, but those strategies all failed. You have to have a full backstop political and legal and regulatory strategy. And, and that's how come all our efforts, almost invariably, they go to the governor. And the, the, if you can bring sufficient pressure to bear on whoever it is, whether it's the president, whether it's the governor, you can win. It's just not that hard. Yeah, I want to understand this specific skill, this sort of strategic thinking. Like, it sounds like you're saying it's all about identifying what would be the appropriate pressure point. Where's the bottleneck that we really need to be focusing on? How do you know when you mentioned the pipeline that went near the nuclear power plant? I mean, like you said, it sounds good. I mean, to me, that sounds great. It's like, how could you argue with that? That's a great talking point, risk of a pipeline explosion near a power plant. But if I may, see, yeah. there's no legal so requirement, you know? right? Yeah. It sounds good, but there's no legal requirement. When I look at all of these Federal Energy Regulatory Commission decisions, they're, they're just amazing. And these are all the documents that I posted at ToxicsTargeting.com. The Crestwood uh, campaign is right at the top of our homepage. So again, enviros typically say, this is unsafe. We have all these experts. We have right. all these legal arguments. 
And then FERC says, well, that doesn't really have anything to do with, with the actual law. And then they rebut each and every single one of these assertions in excruciating detail. And so you have to know the law. You have to know what the right. law specifically requires. And then you can sometimes combine that with an overarching message, right? You know, like if fossil fuels are so bad, we shouldn't be perpetuating our addiction uh, to using them by making investments of billions of dollars in pipelines, power plants, gas storage. That's an irrefutable political argument, and we've used it very well because the governor, uh, uh, Cuomo, refused our request to deny the gas storage permit for two years. And then in the beginning of June, I documented that the state knew in 2011 about these gas store, uh, salt cavern leakage concerns. And then a, a last Monday, week ago uh, Monday, the Schuyler County Legislature withdrew its support for the project. And four days later, the governor denied the permit. And during that four-day period, fractivists had been foam banking the governor like mad and writing these amazingly powerful uh, email, personalized email requests that he denied the permit. So the ask is really key, right? Where you look at, listen to the difference. We request that you not authorize, right, versus we request that you deny, right? And so it, it seems like such a subtle little difference, but it's a world of difference. So at the end of the compilation of all these personalized emails, I let one blogger in, include his excerpt. He was just pontificating like mad, seems like a loser. Well, so what? What's that got to do with anything? But the beauty of Toxics Targeting's personalized emails you can say anything you want up top about what your concerns are and blah, blah, blah. But then it echoes this very detailed technical request that is bulletproof. It's dry, it's technical, it's legal, but we know what we're talking about. So whenever I see these activists coming up with these wacky ideas that sound sensible, they sound sexy, they sound persuasive, but they don't have anything really to do with the legal and technical regulatory requirements. Mm -hmm. And so I think to myself, if someone said, I'm just going to go on the internet and I'm going to learn how to be a brain surgeon, I think that I could do that. Or I'm going to learn how to become a world-class pitcher. I could think I could throw 95 by watching YouTube, right? Or I'm going to write the great American novel. You say, that's great, but that's not likely to work, right? And yet people are absolutely unabashed about thinking that they know how to influence big-time political decisions. And these politicians like Governor Cuomo, they are the slickest, the trickiest, the most experienced operators you will ever encounter. They are like ninjas. And so if you think that you can beat LeBron James one-on-one, -on -one, like be my guest, right? He is going to crush you. You know, he's going to like kick your butt. It's the same thing. People have to learn. I really believe that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who are coachable and there are people who are totally uncoachable. If you're coachable, you can build an amazingly effective coalition of the willing. And we've shown 
you know, that in New York on shale fracking, on legacy toxic sites, on uh, harmful algal blooms, on fossil fuel infrastructure battles, we are just unbelievably formidable. It's an unprecedented campaign. No other little grassroots operation has killed nearly $5 billion in infrastructure projects. In other states, these infrastructure pipelines and gas storage and frack gas power plants are going up hither and yon. It's because they don't know how to fight back effectively, but it's not that hard. So what would so somebody let's say somebody's listening to this and they they're wanting to be more strategic. They're wanting to be more certain that they're choosing the right targets. What would be your advice to them if they don't have an organization like yours that they can depend on or that they can reach out to or connect with? All they have to do is contact Toxics Targeting, you know, send an email to Walter at ToxicsTargeting.com. People contact me all the time from all over the country. I mean, yesterday I got an email from a wonderful, good-hearted, you know, activist in Pennsylvania. This person had 289 production wells, you know, in her town. And she said, we're fighting and I said, what's your plan? You know, if you don't have a plan, you're not going to be a formidable, you know, force. It's not like you're going to win. They didn't have a plan, right? So I said, the first plan is you got to get money, right? If you got money, let's say someone gave them $200,000, which is not that much in the vast scheme of things for philanthropic entities. I mean, the big green groups are blowing like a billion dollars a year and they get nothing done. So you find a, a, a philanthropic entity that really wants to save Pennsylvania, from fracking, you get money, you can start raising, you know, running radio ads. Just torture the powers that be very respectfully until they give you what you want, right? You say, I want a fracking ban, and you're 12 people. They say, we can only get 150 people to our events. This is an organizing challenge, right? It's like the same thing as running a church bazaar or running a youth hockey program. If you don't get a lot of people to participate, you ain't got a whole lot there, Right. And, and so get the money, get help. You have to be coachable. I talk to people all the time. So I invite people to call Toxics Targeting, email Walter at ToxicsTargeting.com. But look at how we did it. It's the old-fashioned Ralph Nader model of research, advocacy, public policy, you know, efforts, coalition building. And the most important thing is media. Hardly any other group in the country gets as much focused media uh, as, as our campaign gets. We get coverage in Denmark. We get coverage in Kazakhstan, Israel, as well as blanket coverage here in New York. Our legacy toxic site campaign, including Ithaca Falls, has gotten 20 front-page articles since March. I've never been on a tear like this because there are so many problems out there. So contrary to what the big greens have tried to tell the public and their membership, we got more problems than you can shake a stick at. Go to the Home Buyer Beware Toxic Site Map. Just type in your address. It's free. And see what's around you that might need cleaning up. Morse Chain, Nate's Flora Estates, Ithaca Falls, Ithaca Lake, where 30,000 people get their drinking water. And if you don't get involved, if you think someone else is going to save you, you're going to get screwed. If you do get involved, and people contact me all the time, 
you can be very effective. We all work together, all for one, one for all. That's what our campaign is about. We're countervailing force to all the big greens that shill for the governor. Thank the governor. What has the governor done, right? And, and that's how come we're honest, we're open, we're transparent, but we don't want to lose, and we're not going to give up. And that's how come we're now an incredibly formidable force. So, the, again, sign the coalition letters at ToxicsTargeting.com, write personalized emails, and then echo our requests. And you'd be amazed at how that terrifies candidates because, as you noted, when people know what's going on, one person can really pack a wallop. But if you just say, we want sustainable energy, we want clean water, you go like, I'm all for clean water. Yeah, I'm there, man. But you didn't require them to do anything. And mm-hmm. that's the name of the game. The problem, the solution, what we want you, Very Governor Cuomo, to action. do. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you have to hold them accountable. Mm-hmm. If the governor doesn't do what you request, you have to keep asking. And then you say, for example, hypothetically, if you don't do this, you ain't getting my vote. If you don't do this, I'm telling everyone I know you're you know, a climate change hypocrite. You're a big bag of hot air. I don't think you can be trusted. And I'm going to tell everyone I know that you really don't deserve to be the chief executive of New York. Then you start bird-dogging him. Like I won a a, a reporter's pool for the best quote one time uh, in Binghamton when I said, we're going to bird-dog the governor in every community where he shows his face. That's exactly what we did on shale fracking. We continue to do it on fossil fuel infrastructure. Every public appearance. Every public appearance, we're there. And when we ruined his state of the state year after year, the last time we did it, we had 2,000 people on the concourse with all the legislators, all the political key players coming down the concourse to go to what's called the egg. And there were just thousands of chanting anti-frackers. We had big fake pipelines, and we just ruined his day. So you always ask very nicely, if you get what you want, the person is your friend, you say thanks. If they don't do what you precisely want, they have to get hammered until you get a favorable reply. I'm not trying to hurt anyone. That's just what politics is all about. Reward your friends. Punish your enemies. It's as simple as that. Um, you mentioned coachable, and uh, I know that you have a background in hockey coaching. That's right. Yeah, and so I wanted to talk about this for a minute because you talked about how hard it is to go up against the one of the biggest industries in the world to go against really slick politicians, and this is going to be whether you're in a state where your governor is like, you know, unapologetically pro-industry or more vague, it doesn't really matter. They're going to be super slick. They're going to be good at what they do. So don't assume that you can just win by reading some articles and by just being confident that you have to be willing to learn. Could you elaborate on that? Like what would be the, one of the most important things that somebody could learn if they wanted to be more effective? So I love the concept that if you were a former collision athlete or for example a chess player you know the difference between winning and losing right that's the name of the game 
And so a lot of people think, oh, you know, I'm making a heroic effort. I should be lauded because, you know, I'm resisting. I hate that word, right? We're not resisting. We're fighting back. We're kicking butt. We're winning, right? That's the name of the game, right? And, and, and so when I coach kids, you know, I, I did this for 15 years. I was a soccer player. I had never played hockey until I got here to Ithaca. But I couldn't run as fast as I could in my youth. And so I could skate much faster, you know, than I could ever run. And and so I started coaching kids. And in the beginning, I was like hardcore, like all my coaches. You got to go hard, you know, go hard. And by the end, I was like, man, just love the game. We're going to have so much fun. You kids have learned to play well. You've learned to play together. We're like, you know, a, a Mongol horde on skates. It's the same thing with politics, right? If you don't know what to do, right, you can make terrible errors. Like the environmental movement spends almost all of its time thanking elected officials for gutting critical regulatory programs and for basically not cleaning up the environment and making a lot of promises that are never capped, right? Where did that come from, right? And so they don't really understand what the whole process is. So one of the things I used to do is I used to take a magic marker and I draw a line around the crease, which is that painted area right in front of the goal. And I'd say 90% of all the goals that are scored in hockey are scored within one foot of the crease. And I said, if you want to score goals, you got to get to the front of the goal. You got to get it in front of the crease. And you know what's going to happen when you go to that area? The defense is going to knock you on your ear. They're going to butt you, you know, butt end you with their sticks. They're going to slash you, but that's what it takes to score goals. You got to screen the goalie, you got to score rebounds. And so it's very simple, right? I would say take the shot, crash the net, score on rebounds, right? And so people have to learn what to do. And it's a it's a secret society in politics. People never really know what's going on because the, the polls don't want them to know what's going on because otherwise they'll be held accountable. So the most important thing is you have to be open to learning and coaching. You got to find the people who really know what's going on, who are honest and who you can trust. How do you know you can trust someone? You have to work with them on something and not get screwed. So, for example, there's a huge incinerator project that's proposed for, uh, you know, the Finger Lakes. And so one of the groups that thinks they're, you know, God's gift to organizing, they've totally allied themselves with someone who does not deserve their trust in any way, shape, or form. And now they're actually attacking someone who could be of enormous benefit. And you say, how do these people get so confused? They're totally uncoachable, Right. They aren't open to suggestion. And so the people who are successful, you start out as a little shrimpy, right? You're 22 years old. You don't know anything. You make a presentation to Ron Peterson, the chief staffer for the state Senate you know, Committee on Environment. At the end of showing him all that gas chromatography data, you, you show how the law isn't being enforced, blah, blah, blah. He looks at you very nicely, and he, and he says benevolently, well, frankly, we don't like any of those ideas. And he kicks you out very politely. You're standing in the hall of the third floor of the Capitol, the most beautiful building in New York State. You look at your colleague, you know, Joe Salvo, an RPI trained scientist who's now the counsel for Sesame Street, incredibly competent. 
And you say, you know, I think this means all our bills are dead. This was the second day of session. We were like, is this a personal story? It's a personal story. And so you have this revelatory <laughs> moment. You know, you say, hey, they said all these, you know, environmental and public health decisions were going to be based on good science. And then you say, doesn't sound like it. It's based on politics. This dude does not want to do what we want done, right? And so you have to figure out how do you work around them? Mm-hmm. And that's when you can go to their districts of marginals and you say, we need your help. If, if you don't help us, you are going to earn our undying unhappiness. We're not going to help you. We're going to try to knock you out. We're going to do everything we can to make your life miserable. However, this is a public interest issue. Protecting public health and the environment from toxics is required by law. You have to be willing to enforce the law. Otherwise, you don't deserve to be in elected office, right? But if you don't know how to voice those concerns, make those well-founded arguments, right? If you're there like, we want clean water, right? I'd be like, I'm with you. You know, I couldn't agree more. I drink water every day, right? That's not an effective strategy. And so you think, how do you get a thousand people who know the secret handshake? You know, like one of my favorite people is this woman, Erin Heaton. She's a librarian in Westchester County. She has helped so much. She's organized. And one day she, she calls me up and says, hey, you know, I think that woman Zephyr Teachout signed one of your coalition letters. I was like, you're kidding me. And so we brought Zephyr Teachout here to Ithaca. We introduced her to 100 fracking, anti-fracking leaders. We had a fundraiser at my house. She got the second biggest individual contribution in my living room. And she took a million votes from Andrew Cuomo, a sitting you know, governor who was thinking about running for president. And then right afterwards, six weeks after he got elected, he threw in the towel on shale fracking because he just couldn't take it for another four years of mm-hmm. getting bird dog, getting tortured, getting hammered. You know, he went to Puerto Rico one time and a woman was there holding up a single no fracking sign. So you have to be organized. You have to find people who are like-minded you're all unified. You're working together. You know, you're, you, all these people who think they're Mahatma Gandhi, you know, it's just like, listen, we're, we just want to stop fracking. We want to stop this stupid pipeline. And then you have to be able to work together to echo the same request. Mm-hmm. Whenever you have people that are asking for 10 things, you know, like before and after air quality testing, sounds good. It's not required by law. They're never going to do it. And then the assumption is, oh, we'll show that the pollution levels went up. So, of course, they'll decommission the facility. It's like, are you crazy? They're never going to do that. Like right now, they're saying that Governor Cuomo should require the Algonquin incremental market you know, pipeline to be shut down. It's like, this is an interstate pipeline. He doesn't have any authority to do that. So you have to work yeah. with people who are knowledgeable, who have the applicable political experience. And those are the elected officials who have to be trustworthy. For example, we have Barbara Lift in our assembly rep. This woman is one in a gazillion. She's a former school teacher. Without her, we would not have stopped shell fracking in New York because she organized you know, representatives in both houses, the state senate and the assembly, and they wrote letter after letter. They had news event after news event, and they were very important because they're at the table. Without the assembly and the state senate and the governor coming together, you ain't got no budget, 
right? Mm-hmm. So when you have leadership in the state assembly saying, no, 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 we're not doing that. No, we do not want that. That's important. That's power. And that's what people have to understand. You know, you can blog until, you know, the cows come home. Maybe it will work, but it's not likely. I mean, if you're Ralph Waldo Emerson, you can make history. If you're some little schlemiel that, you know, is just pontificating about stuff you don't really know about, it's probably not going to help. So that's how come everyone has to learn their craft. Mm -hmm. I truly believe that because that's what I did. You know, in the beginning, we didn't know anything. And you rely on people that are true experts in their craft. Absolutely. And that's how it all comes together. Like one of my favorites is this guy, Richard Young. He's a geology professor at SUNY Geneseo. And uh, he went to Cornell. He's from Rhode Island. I, I basically grew up in Rhode Island. My godparents are there. And so we were uh, in Pulteney, New York, where we were trying to block the first uh, wastewater discharge uh, facility. And this is, you know, an incredibly beautiful area, right? I'm sitting next to this guy, and I I watch his presentation. I'm like, oh, my God, this guy knows more about Marcellus Shale, you know, than anyone we've run across. And so he was like our secret weapon. Whenever we had a technical question, like when I found out about the salt cavern concerns, I called him up. I said, have you heard about this? He said, no. And so it turned out some people knew about it through the litigation, but they couldn't tell because it was privileged information. So I told W-E-N-Y, you know, and I told W-E-T-M, and we broke the story, right? And, and so just having that access – like Barbara Lifton's uh, staff has been another, you know, amazing secret weapon. I mean, they've worked so hard. She has this legislative aide named Jordan Lesser. He's an Ithacan. He went to Cornell. His, his father is an academic. He was like our secret weapon because he was like our attorney. So whenever we had questions about the legality and, and you know, understanding the law, the, the, the common law, you know, and, and how the law is interpreted, this is very, very tricky stuff, right? Everyone thinks they can, you know, do the lawyering. It's almost impossible to figure out unless you're a lawyer. And so finding these resources right. who really want to help, who share the same dedication to common goals – that's how you build a team, right? Mm-hmm. And it and it isn't just deranged. And that's and part rating. of being coachable. You know that you don't have all the answers, so you build a team. You surround yourself with people who are experts in what they do, so that you have someone you can call on. Also, so that you can confer about what's right. the best strategy. Exactly. These strategic decisions are very complicated. Right. Like when you look at President Trump and Putin. He's driving his own Republican Party to complete distraction. I mean, they are just going bananas. But I'm telling you, there's an underlying strategy there. It's very complicated, you know, and that's how come you think that seems totally nuts. That just seems like death. But he's doing it because he he has some very, very sound thinking. People think he's an idiot. He's actually a genius extemporaneous speaker. It's very simple. He says everything twice, right? And so he speaks very, very powerfully to his base. And and right. that's what we as organizers have very to do. Intentional. Yeah. yeah, you have to find people who share your goals, who want to work with you. The big greens never, very rarely want to work with me. 
like when I originally, you know, outlined my strategy of withdrawing the supplemental generic environmental impact statement, one uh, attorney for one of the big groups who I had worked with for many, many years, I married a woman who was, you know, a, a staffer at that group. So this attorney said, Walter's strategy has a snowball's chance in hell. You know, I was like, whoa, <laughs> you know, I don't take that from anyone and my strategy ultimately won. I conferred with a, a Washington uh, bigwig on Federal Energy Regulatory Commission matters when I started my uh, fossil fuel infrastructure campaign. And I told this person, FERC approves all these pipelines, etc. And as near as I can tell, the only state authorization that's required and is allowed to be made by the states if they act within one year is the Section 401 Water Quality Certification under the Clean Water Act. I said, I'm going to try to get the governor in New York to deny those water quality certification. This guy was a complete jerk. He said, no one has ever tried to stop pipelines with that strategy. And I said, well, I'm going to. And that's exactly how we did it. We killed Constitution. We killed Northern Access specifically because the Section 401 water quality certifications were denied. Again, you have to deny it because the state has a year to act. If they don't act, FERC will approve it. So these are so complicated. Right. When you read these documents, your head swims, right? If you don't have decades of experience, mm -hmm. you go like, we'll never figure this out. Mm -hmm. And yet people think, we'll hire attorneys, we'll hire consultants, they'll opine, and of course we'll win. And then so when you look at Crestwood, they probably wasted millions. I mean, they had more consultants and attorneys than you can shake a stick at, and they got crushed at every level. They got crushed on the LPG, liquefied petroleum gas storage. They got crushed on the expanded methane gas uh, project. And, and so this would have happened on fracking. They would have told the big philanthropic entities, we're going to sue when you know Governor Cuomo or Governor Patterson adopts fracking and we'll protect New York. They would have gotten crushed. And that's how come the combination of understanding the technical data to document problems that people care about, understanding what the law is, and most importantly, understanding the politics, right, which are very, very hard to learn, right? Uh, once you understand all that, once you can come up with a viable strategy, and once you can execute that strategy, basically by working 24-7, you can win. But once you win, you have enormous credibility. Like when I looked at the description of what Crestwood had in mind for these gas storage facilities, how it was a critical hub in enhancing their ability to transmit gas from fracking production wells in Pennsylvania to New England, downstate New York, Canada, very likely for export. I was like, wow, this is a lot of money, and they are going to be extremely unhappy that we have killed these two projects. They are going to go bananas. But, you know, the reality is they can't stop us because we work harder, we work better, and we're, we're absolutely unrelenting. So the, as far as I'm concerned, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. But you have to find groups in other states 
that can organize themselves to take effective action. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they're, they're just not going to prevail. Mm-hmm. Aligning ourselves with people who are knowledgeable, that we can trust, to help guide the very specific strategies, like the legal strategies, that can actually prevent something like a pipeline. And then there's the story. There's being able to tell the story about what the campaign is, you know, speak to an audience. What advice do you have for us in that type of a situation? How do they balance out? See, the, it, it's so incredibly tricky. What people don't understand is that when they get a letter from their you know, elected representative or from you know, some candidate for higher office, it's like a huge industry that's creating those missives. Uh, for example, um, I knew this guy, Andrew Kennedy, from Middlebury College, and he elected – he ran uh, George Hawk Bruckner's congressional campaign on the eastern end of Long Island. And now he's a big player in Washington. And so his specialty is he writes the communications for candidates for higher office. You think, how hard could that be, Right. But actually, it's incredibly complicated for the reasons you just noted. Mm-hmm. How you hit those hot-button issues right, uh, is, is a lot harder than you think. How you raise the money is a lot harder than you think. These political decisions are very, very complicated. And that's how come years and years ago, I thought, you know, I'll run workshops. I'll teach people how to speak in quotes. I'll teach them how to crank out, uh, you know, news releases, you know, how to learn how to stand so that when you get interviewed, you know, it it looks good on on TV. This is a lot harder than you might think. When we killed fracking, we actually had a news conference in uh, Binghamton because everyone there, you know, had worked so hard. It was the epicenter of the fight. And this one activist said literally to to the press there, I'm going to talk to the people who are important, and it isn't you. And he turned his back on the cameras. I was like, and he talked to the to the audience. I was like, whoa, where did you get that idea, man? The idea is to get news coverage. News coverage is our biggest weapon. So I, I had this idea. I'll train these people, but they're not coachable for the most part. You, you see all these academics, and they're opining. They just love to just pontificate and speculate and you know talk about conspiracy theories. That's the opposite of doing the hard work of knocking on doors, thinking really hard about who can we find to help us? Who are the groups that are out there? Who are the people who can organize 100 people? It's not that hard you know, to organize 100 people. You could go to the commons. You could get 100 signatories to a coalition letter in the morning, right? But, oh, that's just too hard work, right? People would rather pontificate on Facebook. So we have to get away from Twittering, I believe, posting on Facebook, you know, I believe finding those librarians, finding those dentists who can actually leverage, you know, a local effort into ultimately a unified coalition. I think that's really key. And there are a lot of people out there who can do it. You just have to find them. Every community. Don't don't be distracted by what seems like the easy win. There's it's there's not, no there's no easy win. There's no free lunch. There's no new app that comes out that's going to build the movement. There's no s- solution that's going to be a click of the button. It's, that's right. It's still going to require relationships. It's going to require hard work. It's going to require trust. 
and we always have to be open to learning. We, even if we have a brilliant idea, we have to be willing to have that idea tested, and we have to be willing to be wrong. See, when people think, oh, I'm just going to you know, yeah. click this text message from Credo, and then that'll make the governor do what I want— you know, that's just not going to work. It doesn't work, right? Anything that's really mm-hmm. easy, it's not really going to work, right? And so that's how come when I tell people, you know, write a personalized email. My name is blank. I live at blank. I write right. today because blank. And then they just send that, you know, form letter. And it's just like, this is like telling the governor you actually don't give a crap. That you're just, you know, reflexively hitting click and, and you don't want to put any effort into it. But then you see these missives that people write and, and it's just like the governor reads that and he says, this person is going to be trouble. This person is going to show up. This person could chain themselves to the balustrade outside, you know, the war room on the second floor, yeah. right? This person is obviously talking to people who know the secret handshake who know how things happen in the Capitol, right? And that's what terrifies them. So imagine if you want to play for the Yankees in Yankee Stadium. You're not just going to show up and you know put on the pinstripes. You got to start off in Little League, and then you got to work your way up and play college ball, and you play minor league, and you move it all the way up. And if you ultimately succeed, you know, the next thing you know, you're in Yankee Stadium. That's incredible, but that's so hard. Right. But isn't that hard to become an effective activist? But you have to measure your results. Right. You just can't blindly plow on and post stupid, you know, pictures of supermodels stripping. And that's going to save the planet from climate change. Right. That's just not happening. Right. And, and so that's how come I believe that all politics is local. You work on local issues. It's very hard to sustain these efforts. But, you know, this woman contacts me from Ohio and says, we're desperate to stop these salt cavern storage facilities. Can you send us a report? Right. And it's like, if you think some report is going to be handed over to the head of, you know, the government agency or the governor or the head of the legislature and they'll say, oh, gosh, I had no idea. Oh, man, we're just going to stop this project dead in its tracks. Right. That's just not the way it works. Industry is very, very powerful, even polluting industry. And so if you want to stop fossil fuels from polluting the planet and contributing to global climate change, you got to stop using it. And the easiest way to do that is to save money by insulating your home, weatherizing your home, replacing all of your incandescent light bulbs. This sounds so stupid, right? Getting a better refrigerator. But government could really help with that. And so that's, again, that's a practical solution that almost no one talks about. I'm the only lunatic that talks about that, but I think it's irrefutable. I think it's very viable. And I think ultimately we could cut energy demand by a third. Like I was reading about how yeah. the salmon out west are, are still so beleaguered. Why? Because of the dams. Why are the dams there? They generate electricity. You don't need as much electricity. You don't need as many dams. It's as simple as that. These are ancient structures, incredibly costly to maintain. Blow those suckers up. We only need as much energy you know, as we are using. We reduce demand. That is the ticket, man. That is just hard to beat. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you want to add? I just I really believe that people are much more powerful than they think they are. 
If you just say to any elected candidate, you ain't getting my vote unless you do A, B, C, and D, right? If you do that, I'm happy to vote for you. I'm happy to extol your virtues. If you don't do it, I'm telling everyone I know you're a bum and you don't deserve to be our blah, 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 fill in the blank, right? Everything has to be reality-based. Once you learn these very simple tools, right, you can be enormously more effective. Anyone that goes to say to Barbara Lifton, I'm your constituent. I love what you've been doing. Thank you so much. Uh, I want to know how I can help, right? And then you start helping. And then pretty soon you learn how to stuff envelopes. The next thing you know, you learn how to, you know, phone bank. Next thing you know, you learn how big time statewide representatives make decisions. And then you can see whether they're good, they're bad. You know, and you learn the trade. So yeah, you have to learn the language. You have to be close to it to start to see the patterns and understand where those pressure points are. Right. You you see how the sausage yeah. factory works for good or for ill, and and so once you learn that, that is a lifetime skill for shaping public policy. And if you believe in government, as I do, if you believe government is generally speaking a good thing, it can help people, it can improve our lot, then you have to make sure that all the money that's going into government is spent wisely. And so it isn't enough to just pontificate, rant, and rave. You may feel better, but that doesn't make change. You want to make change, that's hard. That's really hard. But our campaign in New York, to block shale fracking, to block $5 billion worth of infrastructure projects, to clean up toxic sites, it's a testament to how powerful citizen action can be. We just need to do more of it. Uh, so if, if anyone out there really wants to help, contact Toxics Targeting. Go to our website. Uh, click the two lower right-hand uh, buttons. And if you're incredibly wealthy and you want to change the world, you know, you know how, where to find me. We would love you know, to help because that's what it takes. It, it isn't like you wave a magic wand it's not like someone is out there just pasting on face, posting on Facebook. You, mm-hmm. you have to run a campaign. Campaigns are hard. They're very, very complicated to keep everyone moving uh, in the right direction, working together. But that's what we've achieved. So I want to thank everyone who has helped Toxics Targeting's campaign in the last eight years, including so many people here in Ithaca, but people from coast to coast. When you look at those coalition letters and you see people signing from Crested Butte, Colorado, you see people signing from Seattle, you know, from all over the South, you say, why are these people signing? It's because they know something about New York or they're from New York or they have friends from New York and they're plugged in. So together, I Mm -hmm. think we can, as, you know, Robert F. Kennedy put it, you know, sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression. That's why we're doing it. We're not doing it. You know, for personal aggrandizement, we're doing it to protect the public health and the environment. And when we achieve that, people will not get cancer as much. And if they don't get it, then we don't have to treat it or cure it, neither of which we can do. Anyway, that's what I learned at Roswell Park. That's what's driven me for 45 years. And and it's working. We're making progress. We just need to go farther and faster. Thank you so much, Walter, for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks again for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, absolutely. Take care. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Walter Hang from Toxics Targeting. 
You don't need to be in New York State to be involved with toxics targeting campaigns or to learn about their work. As mentioned in the episode, you can contact Walter at ToxicsTargeting.com or go to the website ToxicsTargeting.com and look at the call to action in the bottom right page. This podcast is a project of HaltTheHarm.net, a website and resource that connects you with leaders, activists, researchers, economists, legal experts, and funders to protect your community from oil and gas industry. Halt the Harm is a network of leaders who are taking action, sharing resources and information, and supporting each other's campaigns. Find out more and join at HaltTheHarm.net. The soundtrack of the podcast is One of These Days by Elin Jewell from her album Sea of Tears. This podcast is recorded, produced, and published in the studios of WRFI Watkins Glen, Ithaca. Thanks for listening.